You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. A Yugoslav fashion show. And the fate of the world depends upon it. It's 1952. Two Americans are doing a very dangerous thing. Flying in a plane over communist China. Yet, these two men, CIA agents, the ones that have done their homework. They have friendly agents on the ground, Chinese co-conspirators. And they are there to pick up an intelligence packet filled with confirmations about the weaknesses of the Chinese government incriminating evidence. The friendly Chinese agents on the ground call for an air winch. This is a device that can pick up a package from their C-47 plane. They get to the site agreed upon in the moonlight and see four or five people on the ground. One of them is holding the harness that they delivered that would be picked up by the plane. And they lower their C-47. And when, wham! Two anti-aircraft guns appear from behind white sheets and now fire into the plane. Devastating crossfire, hitting the engines, the cockpit, disabling the plane. Pilots die as the plane goes down. The CIA agents, they're okay, but they're captured. One of them, John Dowling, is immediately identified by his captor. Your name is Jack, he says. You have a very dark future. He wasn't wrong. For now, both of them are taken to dark cells and separated, interrogated. They're not beaten according to their accounts, but they are made to sleep in leg irons and then go into full-day, sometimes 12-hour interrogations, standing up. It takes 16 days for Dowling's co-captive, Richard Facteau, to reveal that he is a CIA agent. Downing eventually does as well. Training was inadequate, both men said, in terms of what to do when they were captured. It was 1952. CIA was a relatively new agency at this point. Facteau was told that One might as well confess if you're captured. They're going to get the information anyway. Facteau and Downing, the two young CIA agents, both of them right out of college, are now in a place that the United States has no relations with whatsoever. Dark future indeed. They're brought before a military tribunal. And the two are reunited for the first time. 
they are given a sentence of 20 years in a Chinese prison. Dowling's excited. He thought they would end up being executed. Early in the Nixon administration, Henry Kissinger, head of national security, the national security advisor to President Nixon, goes into General Al Haig's office, one of his subordinates, and says about President Nixon, This guy wants to go to China. I think he's lost control of his senses. There would have been no other way to look at that in 1969. There was no communication between Communist China, Red China as it was called, and the United States. President Eisenhower treated mainland China as a group of communist insurgents, temporarily holding the mainland, as did most of U.S. policy makers. All U.S. policy was pointed towards nationalist China, Taiwan, the island outside the Chinese mainland, where the government of Chiang Kai-shek was holding temporarily, waiting for their chance. That was the only China that the United States recognized. At this point, it was the only China that the United Nations recognized. Eisenhower, in 1960, last year of his presidency, visits Taiwan just to firm up the point about the relationship between nationalist China and America. He had begun his administration in the midst of a war with Korea, in which China was known to be helping to supply North Korean fighters and providing arms and soldiers of their own. One of the first things he does as President Eisenhower is remove the 7th Fleet from the Taiwan Strait. Now why? Why take an American fleet away? Because Truman had put the 7th Fleet there as peacekeepers between the two Chinas. I didn't want that. He wouldn't allow Chiang Kai-shek to be able to attack the mainland whenever he wanted, free of American interference. The nationalist China was never able to do it. Mao Zedong's communist government was firmly in control, like it or not. And after they seized control of the mainland, Mao's policy was to lean to the east. That means better relations with the communists. He visits Moscow in 1949. Joseph Stalin recognized both governments, actually, at that time nationalist and communist China. Stalin was somewhat skeptical about the Chinese communists, and this would be a factor in the relationship between communist China and the Soviet Union for some time. But he does sign, at the behest of the Chinese leaders, a friendship agreement. Economic aid, foreign student exchanges start to happen, help with the construction of hospitals and buildings flows from Moscow to Peking. When skeptical Stalin changes to a more competitive Khrushchev, the Chinese see their role as the real communists, where the Russians are giving up on the idea. They're not interested in shoe-thumping, bluster, as Khrushchev is, but real aggression and opposition to the West. They have the atomic bomb by 1964, and by 1968, they will surpass the United Kingdom in economic production. So they claim. They're trading with the United Kingdom, after all. Trading with Germany and trading with Japan. For Facto and Downing, the 10-year anniversary of their capture in 1962 comes and goes. It's a new president. Kennedy's now president. 
not Eisenhower. They figure that the anniversary might mean something. They might get released or given a notice of when they would be released. Nothing happens. Now, the conditions are better. The cells are a little better. Instead of interrogations, they receive instructions on Marxist ideology. In fact, Facto is happy because he had heard fantastic occurrences when he was still in the United States about brainwashing that the Chinese could do. He's overjoyed to learn that it's not really possible to be brainwashed, no matter how much of this indoctrination you get. In fact, he finds it all very silly. But they have to pretend to listen. Initially, the agency has no idea that they weren't killed. China reveals it in 1954. The agency takes care of their families and their kids, and sometimes the Chinese allow support packages in. But they're still held, serving out their sentence. Communist China in the 1960s is a force, and looking at the reality of the world, some find it odd that the United States policy at this time is recognizing a small island while ignoring big China with 700 million people. John F. Kennedy, upon assuming the presidency in 1961, considers opening up talks with communist China. But there's a problem in the form of former President Eisenhower. Now, in their pre-inaugural meeting, the day before he's to take the oath of office, Eisenhower and Kennedy meet. And Eisenhower makes this clear. I'm going to support you foreign policy-wise in everything that you do as president. There's only one thing that you can do that will bring my disapproval and my public statement against your foreign policy, and that's if you start relations with communist China. That kills it for JFK. The one thing that Kennedy cannot have in his foreign policy is the old popular general, the previous president, calling him weak. By the time Nixon gets to office, China has the A-bomb, and they are continuing to cause trouble for the United States in another war, Vietnam. But Nixon, elected in 1968, has a plan, and it's one of historic proportions. And it's a secret plan. I mean, imagine if President Obama crafted a deal with Iran and didn't tell anyone, even kept John Kerry mostly out of the dark. That's kind of what happens. Nixon wants to move with China and informs Kissinger, who he trusts, sort of. We'll see that it's never quite the word trust that would be best to use between Kissinger and Nixon, but trust him enough for this project. Nixon's Secretary of State, William Rogers, is competent. But Nixon feels that the bureaucracy at Foggy Bottom is too strong and leaks too much. If Rogers is kept in the dark, he can't accidentally leak anything about Nixon's idea and can always claim lack of knowledge with full honesty. Most of the military, the Congress, Nixon's own party, RNC chair Bob Dole, knows nothing about this outreach. Though keeping such a plan in secret was made a little bit easier by the fact that it was so shocking that Nixon would want to open relations with China. And there's still that common political phrase, only Nixon 
could go to China, and everybody knows what it means. Nixon was an anti-communist. He had outed Alger Hiss during congressional hearings as a communist. He had run against Helen Douglas in the 1950s Senate race in California, implying that she was a communist, handing out flyers that were of a pink color. He had stood tall against Khrushchev when he came and visited the United States in the so-called kitchen debate and stood up for the United States and capitalism. Now, Nixon wants to talk? It was implausible. China had recently called Nixon a gangster with a butcher's knife. Premier Chow Enlai of the People's Republic of China encouraged, as late as 1971, small countries to rise up against the United States, as China had done, just as Americans were revolting against Nixon's policies, referring to the war protesters. Protesting, the American people were revolting, Chow Enlai said, against his policies of war and racial discrimination. And then this. This announcement. Nixon appears on the television screens all across the United States and says this. The announcement I shall now read is being issued simultaneously in Peking and in the United States. Premier Joe Lai and Dr. Henry Kissinger, President Nixon's assistant for national security affairs, held talks in Peking from July 9 to 11, 1971. Knowing of President Nixon's expressed desire to visit the People's Republic of China, Premier Chiang Mai, on behalf of the government of the People's Republic of China, has extended an invitation to President Nixon to visit China at an appropriate date before May 1972. President Nixon has accepted. 180 degree shift in policy, kept secret. Nobody knew it, but there were a lot of events to make that announcement and the resulting visit that would happen soon after happen. How do you get a message to someone that you don't talk to at all? More importantly, someone that you don't want anyone to know that you're talking with. Well, Nixon does this in a variety of ways. He, he told Kissinger about his objective, who told Al Haig and just a few others. He makes hints to the press. He tells Time magazine, the place I would like to go is China. But that just sounds like, well, he's just talking about someday when the communists are defeated, right? He still tries to work through some of his back channels because we have a few ambassadors that the United States are talking to. The Polish ambassador, Romanian ambassador. In fact, they tell the Polish ambassador, try at one of the functions in Warsaw to talk to the Chinese ambassador. And this is how separated the United States is from China at this time. It's hard to imagine now where we, we talk about the Chinese market on the news as a regular thing and how the stock market's doing and what's going on in China and how many American businesses are over there in China. Uh-uh, not in 1969. Nixon's ambassador to Poland is told, you know, try to find the Chinese ambassador and give him a message that President Nixon wants to talk to your government. And literally the ambassadors are like, well, I don't know what the Chinese ambassador looks like. Now, this is a bigger problem than it seems because the ambassador 
is not aware of who's the Chinese ambassador, who might be the Korean ambassador, the Vietnamese ambassador, the various countries that would be represented in Warsaw. He can't talk to the wrong person. That's a huge security leak. You tell the Vietnamese ambassador that Nixon wants to talk to China. That's a huge security leak. He's got to get the right guy. They have no idea. They have no photographs. The American delegation at a Yugoslav fashion show literally finds the Chinese delegation and as they're leaving, runs after them to have a quick informal talk that no one else is going to hear. Literally runs after them and tells them, tell your president, Nixon wants to talk to you. There's other things too. The Romanian uh, president, Ceausescu, meets with Nixon and Nixon conveys the message. He keeps leaking little hints into the press. He tells war press protesters that he meets in 1970, hey, I've tried to talk to all the America's enemies and I've been rebuffed. So he keeps dropping hints that China is a place he wants to go, but nothing that anyone would ever quite you know, imagine is a, is a major part of policy that people are taking seriously. In the end, the best conduit is, in, in addition to some of these other venues, Pakistani President Yahya Khan turns out to be one of the better conduits for the message. But what's pretty clear by the time we get to 1971 is that while things may not be working out as well as in Nixon's dream plan in his head, that the Chinese have probably received the signal. Nixon's actually open to meeting. And it's April 1971 when a note comes from Chinese Premier Chow Enlai, comes to Kissinger. As relations between China and the United States are to be restored fundamentally, a solution to this crucial question can only be found through direct discussion with high-level responsible persons. And, Chow Enlai suggests, Nixon or Kissinger himself. The Secretary of State, William Rogers, isn't even mentioned. Chinese kind of know the deal. To answer that message, Nixon lifts a crucial trade embargo, not all of them, but most of them, on food and other objects that can now be exported into communist China. The nationalist government in Taiwan is now catching on, and they call the move unwise. But American business leaders are starting to ache for some kind of relations with a government of 700 million people, and the New York Times has an article basically questioning, why not? What has two decades of not doing business with this country served? July 1st, 1971, Henry Kissinger gets on an old command plane from the Air Force Tactical Command, filled with boxes. It's not a VIP plane, they do not want to draw a lot of attention, and goes all over the world. He goes to Paris, for peace talks on Vietnam, visits Thailand, India, South Vietnam, and Pakistan. These are all important places to meet right now because one of the things that's going to happen uh, in the 60s and early 70s is there are tensions and fighting between India and Pakistan and the regions in turmoil. In fact, by the time you get to August 1971, and this is not something that's often considered when people think about the Nixon-China trip, India and the Soviet Union are going to conclude an agreement. So this is not an area of the world that the United States can ignore. 
He visits Pakistan and he visits the home of Yahya Khan. Very few people know that Kissinger is also going to get a message from President Khan, which is originating from the Chinese. They totally keep the State Department in the dark about this, except Haldeman tells Secretary Rogers that there is a message from China coming on the Pakistan trip. But there's another part that's not told. And that's a secret operation known as Operation Marco Polo. Now, before Kissinger had even left for Pakistan and these other places, Nixon gives him pointers. Come right to the point, Henry. I'm very nice with communists. But then I give him the cold steel. At this time, you have to think about how powerful the New York Times is. This is one of the things that they're very afraid of. The New York Times reporters had sources everywhere, including Kissinger himself. Kissinger called the New York Times a sovereign country. He joked about how eventually, when there would be a China summit, one of the New York Times reporters were giving him pointers on what to say with the Chinese premier. They're a powerful newspaper. They know everybody. They talk to everybody. They get every story at this time. They're still a powerful newspaper today, but really powerful in 1971. So there is a story in the New York Times that leaks. But it says that Kissinger may go to China sometime next year. The White House has no comment. Nixon's mad. He tells Henry who he blames for the leak to clamp down. The New York Times, the State Department, nobody but Nixon, Haig, Kissinger, Haldeman know this. At the home of President Khan, Henry Kissinger fakes being ill. He has a stomach upset. Well, the president says, you must go to my retreat where my doctor is. I'll take you there. The press is fooled. In reality, they are flying Kissinger to China. He gets on a plane in Pakistan, and there are already five Chinese dressed in formal gear waiting for him. (laughs) Kissinger jokes that he thought he might be kidnapped. (laughs) Uh, But he's not. He's brought to Peking and realizes that he is going to meet directly with the premier Chow Enlai. Chow Enlai is not the ultimate leader of China, that would be Mao Zedong, but he's got chops. He's been Mao's number two since the revolution. Here's what Kissinger says about his early meeting in Peking. I talked with Chow for 20 hours. This is more than all the diplomats ever. There was a wide-ranging discussion of everything, the U.S., the Soviets, you know. The China is very concerned at this point. Almost paranoid, you might say, that uh, between Japan, the Soviet Union, and the United States, there's going to be an agreement, and they're going to carve up China into pieces. And Chow and Lai says to Kissinger, you may tell me that's not going to happen, but it could. And don't you worry, because we'll, we'll be back, no matter what happens. You know, we'll come back. China starts way, talking about rhetoric, you know, that they're looking for a just struggle in Vietnam. But after some of the rhetoric, Kissinger and Chow and Lai work out a plan for a presidential visit. Kissinger makes his point. The only president who can conceivably do what I am discussing is President Nixon. Other political leaders might use more honeyed words, but would be destroyed by the China lobby. What did Kissinger mean by the China lobby? In 1971, he meant the nationalists, the Taiwanese government, and their lobbyists in the United States. A spring visit, 1972, is arranged. 
They think the timing will be good. Nixon's running for re-election. He wants this in 72. The deal is made. Kissinger gets on the plane and flies home. He telegraphs Nixon with the word Eureka. Nixon's pleased, but you can see what's on his mind. He's concerned about something. Isn't Kissinger, who's doing all this diplomacy, going to get credit when all the story comes out? He tells Al Haig, the magazines will want him when this comes out. He's not to cooperate. And so the announcement is made. President Nixon has accepted the invitation with pleasure, etc. People are shocked when Nixon appears on the TV and announces that he will visit next year. The last thing they expected to hear from Nixon. We were at least in a surrogate war with China in Vietnam when he accepts this invitation. Soldiers fighting against at least Chinese supplies, if not some troops as well, some soldiers advising. Nixon, the famed anti-communist of the 1950s, became a senator by attacking his opponents for their communist leanings. Now going to Red China. You know, even today, with a technology that didn't exist then, but exists now, and if you look at the, uh, Google has an algorithm that shows how many times in books, in newspaper articles, a term has been used. And if you look at the term Red China, it increases all through the 50s and 60s and abruptly ends in 1972 and takes a dive down. But at the time, that's how people viewed this. A big red spot on a map. If it wasn't gray, if it wasn't blacked out on that map. Not really a country, but a group that had taken over illegally. Perhaps immorally. And denied the mainland of China from the legitimate ruler that the United States accepted, Chiang Kai-shek. And we now know Nixon's visit to China was a success, but there was reaction at the time. As soon as they make this announcement, Taiwan, nationalist China, is outraged. James Shen, the ambassador to the United States, said Taiwan had been sold out. He was given 20 minutes notice about Nixon's announcement. Conservative Congressman John Schmitz of California, Orange County guy, accuses Nixon of surrendering to international communism. George Wallace says the administration is begging and pleading and groveling before the communists. Pete Domenici, Pete Domenici makes a speech in Congress saying most Americans are against China's entry into the UN. This is what the polls show. Why are you moving in that direction? George Meany of the AFL-CIO, a labor union leader, and yes, a liberal on domestic issues, is a conservative on foreign policy. He attacks the deal. Bob Dole, Robert Byrd, William Fulbright. These are among the senators that issue more subtle criticism, wondering about... What's going to happen with Taiwan, with national China? How does this affect them? Move cautiously, Robert Byrd says. Fulbright attacks Nixon for not consulting with Congress. But probably the strongest criticism comes from 
Senator James Buckley of New York, who speaks out against the policy on the Senate floor. And, of course, his brother, William Buckley, editor of the National Review. And he gets together a group of conservative leaders to criticize Nixon's detente with China. Here in America, work is in trouble. We've offshored our manufacturing, sent away good jobs, and lost so much ability to make things. American Giant is a company that's pushing back against this tide. They make high-quality clothing, sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more right here in the USA. Visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com. Promo code STAPLE20. Nixon's on top of it, though, and he has some allies to his right. He's six. Hit Kissinger on getting some conservatives behind the deal. Barry Goldwater, no friend to Red China, who thought in 1960 in his book that we shouldn't be dealing with Chinese nations, with communist nations at all, is supportive. Strom Thurmond, the senator from South Carolina, is supportive. But most importantly, California Governor Ronald Reagan. Nixon asks, and Reagan accepts, to be Nixon's personal envoy to Taiwan to explain that while we're opening up relations, mostly for the benefit of international policy, that it shouldn't be seen as a lack of commitment to Taiwan. Reagan delivers that message and supports the deal. He tells the press that there's a greater risk to not dealing with China. Here's what Reagan tells a friend about it. Personally, I think that they're a bunch of murderous bums. But in the big chess game going on, where Russia is still Head man on the other side. We need a little elbow room. Now there's one reaction that the Nixon administration welcomes. Indeed, the Soviets are absolutely shocked when Kissinger informs them. And a Soviet source says, this made things very difficult for them. America will be Chinese ally. When Nixon visits Beijing... Anything could happen. The Politburo was worried. That's exactly what Nixon wanted. Because what's going to happen right after this announcement is the Soviets are going to invite Nixon to Moscow and they're going to make more movement on arms limitation talks. As Nixon says, the Soviet game helped the China game and the China game helped the Soviet game. There's a further meeting in New York just to finalize some of the details. This meeting's between Kissinger, a couple of his deputies, and George H.W. Bush, ambassador to the United Nations. They make clear that there's going to be a goal in this trip of taking a step back from Taiwan, but not completely. Things still aren't perfect yet for a presidential visit, so what they do in January 1972 is they send Al Haig out to China for a test run to do exactly all of the things that President Nixon is going to do when he visits China. He's going to be essentially wargaming, pretending to be the president. And he does. And when he arrives, he finds that it's an absolute disaster. There are anti-imperialist signs greeting them. They, one of the first receptions that Haig goes to is in Shanghai, and the person there is speaking out against America and imperialism. When they get to a boat to travel to their next destination, there's no food, there's no 
greeting. They're treated very coldly on this trip. And Haig concludes, is this the way they're going to treat Nixon? We're in trouble here. Well, as it turns out, Chow Enlai and Mao, who were seeking the presidential visit with Nixon, were having a little bit of trouble with their hardliners. And in Shanghai, they didn't feel like complying with the instructions from Peking. They wanted to make sure that they treated Nixon's envoy, Haig, really badly. He'd go back to the White House and the whole trip would be off. In fact, Mao Zedong at this time is locked in a battle with hardliners. And the hardliners, led by uh, Lin Bao, do not want the visit to happen. In fact, Mao Zedong's own wife is with the hardliners. So there's a lot of disagreement here. With Americans not having a good viewpoint on communist China in the 1940s and the 1950s, not getting regular sources of news and information, they were unaware of some of the politics going on within China. And what was occurring is Mao had instituted in the late 50s the Great Leap Forward. This is to keep up with the Soviet Union and the Western powers to bring China to an industrialization. Well, one of the things that you're going to have is people forced from their own farms onto communes in order to provide food for the cities which need to build up quickly. This is a horrible system. It ends up in the deaths of millions of people, mass starvation. And even in China, under communist control and with Mao's total control, there is dissent. And while they can't get rid of Mao, he's marginalized during this period. So what he's doing in the mid-60s, he begins the Cultural Revolution. And the Cultural Revolution is where he sorts of appeals to the military a bit to make sure that people that are opposing some of the mid-level bureaucrats, opposing his great leap forward, are now questioned for their patriotism, some of them locked up, killed, etc. They're marginalized so that he can come back to some power. But in doing so, he has to make a deal with the devil, so to speak. The People's Liberation Army rises in power. China becomes even more militant. And by the time you get to this point, 1971, 1972, there's a lot of people who would like to see Mao replaced before he dies. So Lin Bao, who is, is acknowledged as Mao's successor, and there is a conspiracy underway to make him the successor immediately. He's officially anointed as Mao's successor. No one else had ever had that distinction. So he's a powerful figure. There's tensions on the border of the Soviet Union and China, and there's a firefight that's going to begin in 1969 over an island. In fact, you know, scores of, of soldiers are going to die in the, in, the, in the border fighting between the two countries. It almost ignites a full war. Mao and uh, Khrushchev had made a deal about where the border would be defined. Mao indicated to some a Japanese visiting delegation that that border is just the, the beginning of what we're going to ask for. Khrushchev cancels a deal. So they never have a, quite a deal on the border. And then China occupies an island that had been under control of the Soviet Union. Soviet Union takes it back. There's a firefight. There's tanks. All of this is going on. And this gives a, you know, all of the fighting gives a higher image to the military within China. But by 1972, Lin Bao is killed in a mysterious plane crash. Mao's back in power. The presidential visit is on. And when Haig reports about how badly he was treated, 
the delegation in Shanghai reports this back all the way to Mao. And Mao assumes personal control of all the details of the presidential visit and makes sure that none of the local groups, like the hardline controlled group, communists in Shanghai, will be able to dictate how the presidential visit's going to go. So now, by February 21st, 1972, President Nixon arrives in China. He and Pat Nixon step off the plane alone. He doesn't want Kissinger or Rogers in the photograph. As Kissinger says, we were instructed on that point at least a dozen times during the flight. Nixon shakes hands with Chow Lai. Chow and Lai says, Your handshake, Mr. Nixon, came over the vastest ocean in the world. 25 years of no communication. We are about to see the president I wish to thank you for the incomparable hospitality for which the Chinese people are justly famous throughout the world. And I particularly want to pay tribute not only to those who prepared the magnificent dinner, but also to those who have provided these splendid music. Never have I heard American music played better in a foreign land. And it's right after they are signed to their guest houses that Mao Zedong asks to see the president and Kissinger. And for a little over an hour in one of these guest houses in the Forbidden City, two enemies talked. Now Nixon really wanted to get a heart-to-heart with Mao Zedong and get a deal worked out right there. However... Mao is a little bit sheepish, non-committal on the, the political, meaty questions, you know. Sometimes he'd say, those are not to be discussed in my place when Nixon or Kissinger would bring something up. Nixon flatters Mao. He says that his writings have influenced the world. Kissinger says that, as a Harvard professor, I assigned Mao's writings to my class. Mao is, is resistant to the flattery, he says. He's self-deprecating about his level of control over China. I've only changed a few places around Peking. Nixon says that the chairman had insisted when an opportunity comes, seize the opportunity, seize the day. Mao dismissed it. Oh, people like me sound like a lot of big cannons. When uh, Mao says that he's feeling sick, Nixon says, you're looking good. Appearances can be deceiving, Mao says. You know, Mao makes little jokes that all have a little bit of meaning. You know, he tells Nixon that Chiang Kai-shek, the leader of Taiwan, Chiang Kai-shek doesn't like this. Then he says, joking a little bit to Nixon, I voted for you in your last election. I like rightists. But every time Nixon or Kissinger try to grab on what Mao is saying and turn it into something more like, well... You know, a rightist can get more done for you than others. Mal kind of retreats to either making a joke or not saying anything at all. Nonetheless, Kitchener felt he'd actually done a brilliant job of establishing his position on Taiwan and other things with the little jokes. That's it for that meeting. And then for seven days, with TV cameras on, Nixon visits China, a place Americans had not seen in 20 years. For seven days, there's afternoon meetings about various summit points, various points of agreement, 
and disagreement between the two countries, and in the morning there are tours, and at night there are banquets. It is a PR bonanza for Nixon, and it's a signature event of his first term. Uh, Howard K. Smith in ABC sums it up well when he says, Mr. Nixon deserves credit for a masterstroke, both opportunistic and statesmanlike. Here's what uh, Kissinger says to the White House staff. What has been started in China can be a turning point in diplomatic history. Right-wing opponents believe only rigid anti-communism can make us survive. We can no longer afford this. We need wisdom and judgment to survive, and we cannot simply rely on moral superiority and overwhelming productive capacity. Yet, despite the PR success and the future success that the Nixon visit to China is going to have on the impact of Cold War and throwing off the Soviet game, if you will, it doesn't go all well. And not as we mentioned, there weren't the kind of substantial one-on-one real meeting with President Nixon and Mao that Nixon would have wanted. When they craft a communique towards the end of the trip, the Chinese keep insisting that the U.S. abandon Taiwan, that the U.S. abandon any security commitment to Taiwan. Now, they had made it clear in the prior meetings in New York and in Peking that this wasn't going to happen. But still, when the communique comes out, it's, it says that the United States is going to continue to support Korea and continue to support Japan and misses Taiwan. So they have to recraft it. And eventually you come up with this language for Taiwan and the communique. People on both sides of the Taiwan Strait believe there is one China and that Taiwan is part of China. It's clever diplomatic language because what's missing in there? Well, it's like, who controls that China, right? So people in Taiwan believe that there's one China because they think they control the whole thing. And people in Peking think there's one China because they think they control the whole thing. Both agree that Taiwan's part of China. It's a clever diplomatic language. And the Taiwanese are not fooled by this because they know that in 1972, there's going to be very little chance at that point that they have a shot at retaking the mainland without perhaps American help. So they're not going to be the ones controlling China. So saying that there's one China and Taiwan's part of it, they're not fooled. They're not happy. Something else. While President Nixon visits China, an American captive is still held. Richard Fechtel that we talked about, uh, being captured in 1952, is released prior to Nixon's visit. But John Dowling is not. He is told that his crimes are more severe. The captives have been held for 20 years. Because they're CIA, the Army refused to include them in 1955 negotiations that secured the release of Korean POWs. The agency wanted them to be included. The Army didn't do it. China doesn't have an interest in releasing them because they consider them traitors. They're there so long that they had really little hope of release. Every time they had a bit of hope, it had been crushed. Pecto tried throughout the 20 years to keep a routine, doing his calisthenics, etc. They both agreed on one thing. The only way they would describe the 20 years was boring. A book of 500 blank pages was how John Dowling described it. Now, 1973 
when John Dowling's mother has a stroke, Nixon and Kissinger appeal again to China on humanitarian grounds, and Dowling is released then, 20 years after his plane was shot down. He becomes a judge in New Hampshire. He just recently passed away in 2014. And Facto, uh, Facto uh, at the time I'm recording, still alive, and became a uh, gym instructor at his old Alamana of uh, Boston University. I guess those calisthenics came in handy. And there's another thing to point out. The Chinese, though, they're happy to meet with Nixon, and they want a little bit of a triangulation between themselves and the Soviet Union. Refuse to do two things that the Nixon administration probably wants. One is they will not end the war in Vietnam. They are clear during this visit, as they are in all the negotiations before, American troops have to leave Vietnam. We're not the North Vietnamese. We're not going to tell them what to do. The other is, don't stand on China's shoulder to get to Moscow. In other words, we're not going to help you directly with your negotiations with Moscow. You're an equal partner with us. But it doesn't matter in a sense. Not only is the visit highly popular in the United States, the effects of shocking the Soviets and shocking the North Vietnamese, because even if the Chinese don't intervene directly, it's sending a signal to Hanoi. Look, Nixon and Mao are meeting. Red China becomes something different. The idea that communism was a monolith, a single force, it's the way it's always been presented in American rhetoric through the early Cold War, is not true anymore. It's not one leader just pushing buttons. It's clear that there are multiple nations, multiple form, multiple forms of communism, multiple points that can be maneuvered and attacked one by one. And as we consider Nixon's visit to China, I think there's a question that I don't think is asked enough. Did Nixon go to China, or did China go to Nixon? Because the answer, when you really look at, at, at what happened and how long Nixon kind of asked the question before the answer came, is both, obviously. And probably more of the latter, more China going to Nixon than is commonly thought or taught in American history. But presidents get credit for what happens during their administration, and Nixon did send the signal that Kennedy could not have sent. If he didn't send those signals and signal the openness, there would have been no invitation. And even if Mao wanted to do it because of his problems with hardliners, even if he wanted to do it because of his problems with the Soviet Union, he wouldn't have done it if the president didn't make the right signaling moves. One of the translators that was uh, present during the Nixon-China trip, and I was interviewed uh, for PBS, had said that Mao wanted the Nixon visit because it would help with the problems they were having with Russia, and that Russia was the more dangerous opponent for China than the United States. Russia's right on their border. They have a huge military. And they also felt that they could use the U.S. to get Taiwan. Now, that doesn't happen. And Nixon and Kissinger are very clear. Just as the Chinese are clear, like, we're not going to get North Vietnam done for you. Nixon and Kissinger are very clear. We're not going to abandon Taiwan. We might open up relations with you. And we'll go as far to advocate for your gaining a seat in the UN. Initially, they don't want them on the Security Council. They'll find that there's too many countries supportive of communist China to resist that. And... 
communist China ends up on the Security Council. Now, one of the things that Nixon doesn't plan on, this is one of the things that doesn't go so well for the China policy, is that Taiwan gets booted out of the UN. That wasn't the American goal. They wanted to keep uh, Taiwan's seat in the General Assembly and have the communist China have a seat as well and when they knew they couldn't resist it anymore to have them on the Security Council. Too many countries in favor of communist China over Taiwan. And that's one of the things that's going to happen is Nixon's going to be very mad at several countries who they had supported, including Egypt and Israel, that they had supported that are going to then vote for Taiwan to be booted out of the UN. It's important to note that uh, while it's a signature achievement of his first term and no one should take that away from Nixon's legacy, it was a very important event, probably the important event in ending, one of the important events in ending the Cold War. It is not without its problems. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. In Vienna this year, a group of nations, P5 plus one, concluded an agreement with Iran's government to scale back its nuclear program. Europe, particularly France, Germany, and the UK, as well as China and Russia working with the United States, have been negotiating with Iran for years. So the election of a moderate president has helped a bit. Um, I don't think it's a long stretch to compare this moment to the opening of relations with Red China that I described under President Nixon. For one, the enmity of China in 1969 and the enmity of Iran now, where most people still remember that country as the one that took hostages, even though it occurred in 1979, it's still a very fresh memory. I know for me it is. The blackout and news coverage of the nation within the United States, the sanctions, the lack of trade, the role of the nation of Iran in indirectly, and some would say directly in some cases, contributing to the deaths of U.S. soldiers through its support of those attacking in Iraq and other places. You could also compare the resistance of hardliners in China to Nixon's visit to the resistance of hardliners within Iran, including the former president who, who attacked his successor for engaging in the talks. Another comparison point is the role of Taiwan at that time in 1972 as somebody that was lobbying congressmen, donating to various campaigns where they could. 
in being a very important litmus test for conservatives in the United States. Did you support nationalist China and how strongly? You can compare those two situations. And I think the basic truth is that in the past, the United States began talks with a hated enemy for a national security purpose. But, you know, we do comparison. Comparison is the ketchup. Contrast is the mustard. You have to have contrast, too. So, while a lot is similar, there are some differences. Here's a big difference. You don't have the Soviet Union in this picture. You don't have this large and looming single entity that is poised against the United States and against Iran at the same time. Yes, you have the ISIS. Yes, you have various fights that were engaged with. And nothing like the monolith that was the Soviet Union at the time. So you don't have this giant second enemy that made this play stellar and brought some conservatives like, for instance, Ronald Reagan into Nixon's camp. Nixon's visit to China and opening of diplomatic relations was just that. It didn't mean a direct agreement immediately. It didn't mean American concessions. It was very popular with the United States. It wasn't divided. There were a small group of right-wingers, but it was generally the Nixon visit was very popular in the United States. And the largest contrast, perhaps, that makes it different is that Iran, as far as we know, doesn't have a nuclear weapon right now, and China had the A-bomb at the time. So going or not going, you weren't changing the weapon status of China. You were changing, though, the position in the world that they had, their position as a leader of Asia. You were changing their status, how Americans would view them, which is going to, you know, make it more difficult to then go to war with China if we had to, right, in 1972. One of the things William Buckley is going to talk about, and he goes on the China visit with Nixon. He's one of the journalists. He's horrified. He says they're comparing Mao Zedong to, to Washington. And he's toasting all of these people who had been executors during the Great Leap Forward. And Nixon's going around and toasting and shaking hands with them. This is horrible. And I think it's a very similar criticism to what we see today, is that in doing a deal with a nation, you might not immediately be giving up the military option, but you're making it harder to then inspire your population to want to fight, right? If you've just toasted with them in Peking. But it is true to say that when Nixon went to China, he didn't immediately change how well-armed China was with his visit alone. The deal negotiation began in the Bush administration in 2006, when the United States joined the process after the Bush administration tried confrontation alone and wasn't getting a regime change, wasn't getting any cooperation in terms of stalling the nuclear enrichment. Here's what the agreement generally says, uh, summarizing it quickly, but Iran has to reduce its stockpile of low-enriched uranium by 98% for 15 years. has to reduce centrifuge to two-thirds. It has to move the centrifuge to a monitored, searched site. There's a deep mountainside enrichment site that has to be converted to a research center. Iran has to allow the UN Nuclear Agency to, to inspect any site it deems suspicious. If Iran says no, an arbitrator decides, and Iran has to comply. Any time Iran doesn't comply, there's a snapback provision where we snap back to sanctions against Iran. 
Okay, Rand has 24 days before inspectors have to search the site. An arms embargo is in place for five years. On missiles, it's in place for eight years, but then it disappears. Iran gets $100 billion in overseas assets that have been held. A European oil embargo ends. Now, what do we get? Well, I think it moves the problem of a nuclear Iran down the road. And opponents of the deal, I believe, have to explain what alternative they would have to do the same. Is it a military attack? How long is that going to actually postpone such a program versus having it out in the open and monitoring it? We perhaps get lower oil prices. We perhaps get a communication mechanism with what has been a difficult and closed-off nation. We perhaps get a better image in the world. We perhaps get a better image among Iranian people. We don't lose a military option. That's always available there. But Iran does gain $100 billion, and in a nation that has a $368 billion GDP, that's a lot of money. Uh, and we make it a little harder to pursue a military option unless there's a, a flagrant violation of some of these programs because there are allies in this deal as well. So you'd have to get them on board for switching to a military option. But, and the military options are not easy in Iran anyway. Iran's not Iraq. It's not the size nor the population. 77 million people, much larger army than Iraq had. Not very strong in terms of Air Force or Navy, but uh, their sights are not in one place as Iraq had in 1981 when the Israelis found, attacked, and disabled their nuclear program in that year. That's not the way it's done anymore. The sites scattered throughout the nation. The Atlantic Monthly, James Fallows hired retired Air Force General Sam Gardner to conduct a war game scenario. And he's somebody who does war gaming for the National War College. And he identified as many as 300 aim points in Iran and that there would be an intense preparation that would be needed building airfields and the like, which would alert Iran if such an attack were to occur. Iran would then launch attacks probably through Al-Qaeda on the United States, perhaps attacks into destabilize Afghanistan, destabilize Pakistan, destabilize the current regime in Iraq. So uh, uh, Jonathan Warden, who is a architect of the Gulf War campaign in 1991, he told U.S. News and World Report that it would be extraordinarily dangerous to pursue a war option. Because basically to shut down the program, the nuclear program Iran, you'd have to shut down Iran itself. Total war. You'd have to shut down the grid. You'd have to shut down the electricity system. Total war. Uh, retired Army General Mark... Kirtling said that while America has the capabilities, it's not a video game that you can point to a single target and say, I've destroyed that. The U.S. could strike at all targets and probably hit them, maybe miss some, always with a chance of failure or the chance that some targets are unknown. On the other hand, uh, opponents are focusing on the chance that Iran might cheat. Here's what Human Events says. You know, no serious analyst thinks that the Mullah regime is adverse to cheating. It has done so before and has been caught. The inspection process is full of holes. Iran does not have to document previous efforts, and under paragraph 36, 
Iran can abandon its entire commitment if it thinks one of its provisions are being violated. This is about reproachment, this deal, human events says, not regime change and takes regime change as an option off the table. Thomas Friedman, who he usually has his own unique positions on things, and this is no exception, he calls for an authorization for the use of military force and says that should be done prior to the deal. So you have one, a Congress pass an authorization for the president to use it any time. He insisted on military strongmen and a bunker bomb hidden in a mountain, a mop bunker buster bomb that would be ready to use if Iran didn't comply. That's what he says is missing, that there's not this aggressive, you know, perhaps Obama should be carrying out the sword. Oh, Friedman is usually my response to some of the things he said. But I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't say it might be interesting for President Obama to play against type a bit and, and use the threat of a, a military option to enforce the provisions of the deal. I'm not usually one on this program to, to just advocate for one policy or another. I usually use history to beat up your politics a bit. And by that, I don't mean that the history is going to convince you one way or the other on any topic. I do think that it might enrich your thinking, aim you towards more complex thinking, things like that. But uh, that's not the way it works. In this case, I think I don't see the easy option as you had in 1981 when Israel took out Iraq's, you know, very limited nuclear program. This is a more complicated situation. Now, I'm going to say that according to one of the pilots that led that attack, you know, he's, he's out there saying that Israel could probably pull it off themselves still and that don't rule out unconventional thinking, don't rule out things we don't know. And I think that's an important point in all of this on all sides. Like There could be a secret weapon that the United States has, you know, Israel has, there could be some kind of tactic that we're not aware of. So all the retired generals I'm talking about could be unaware of something that the generals that aren't retired know about. But if you just look at what we know, I think the only alternative, if you're talking about aggressively trying to do regime change in Iran or even just take out the nuclear threat, to do it in a meaningful way is total and complete war. Planes, aircraft carriers, ground troops, completely destabilizing, not only costly but deadly for the United States. I don't see how you cannot look at the option of negotiation and talking. And then if something goes wrong, you snap back to where you were. Someone will say, well, Bruce, yeah, but there's Russia is going to be selling its air defense system to Iran. This is the Gargoyle SA-20. It's mobile, hard to reach, and that means that now we're limiting our military options with this deal to just using being able to use stealth fighters alone because they're the only ones that can not be attacked by this Gargoyle uh, SA-20 system that Russia has. Doesn't change my thinking on it a lot. I think that basically... This shows you that to some degree, like it or not, the world situation has changed. And certain foreign policy, the United States would be able to conduct alone. Certain foreign policy we're going to have to do in concert with other powers in the world. And they do have available plays as well. I mean, Russia could very well give them the system if we say no. Then we have one option. 
And it's what I would call the Queen Bee option, you know, where we might be the strongest military in the world and we might be able to sting. We might have just one sting left in us. So it seems to me you have to pursue the negotiation track, but I welcome anyone's opinion on it. I want to thank you for listening. Uh, the website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. And if you like the program, please tell someone about it. Really appreciate that. Review on iTunes or talk about it on your own blog. I accept donations at www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. We're asking for a $25 or more donation in order to obtain the archive, which has all the programs or most of them that we've recorded since 2006 on a variety of topics, including Iran. Thanks for listening. This country was built on a distinctly American work ethic, but today work is in trouble. We've outsourced most of our manufacturing to other countries, and with that we sent away good jobs and diminished our capability to make things. American Giant is a clothing company that's pushing back against this tide. They make a variety of high-quality clothing and activewear like sweatshirts, jeans, dresses, jackets, and so much more. All made right here in the USA, from growing the cotton and adding the final touches. So when you buy American Giant, you create jobs for seamsters, cutters, and factory workers in towns and cities across the United States. And it's about more than an income. Jobs bring pride, purpose. They stitch people together. If all that sounds good to you, visit American-Giant.com and get 20% off your first order when you use code STAPLE20 at checkout. That's 20% off your first order at American-Giant.com with promo code STAPLE20.